Bibles, uh, Mark chapter 13, as you're turning there, let me, uh, let me open up with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you this morning for your, Lord, just for a moment to pause and consider the fact that you know our names. Lord, for us, the future is unsure, but your name is the Ancient of Days, with nothing before you. Nothing behind you, nothing after you, Father. And so I pray this morning that we would be grounded in that truth. The future for us is unsure that is not unsure for you. Lord, I pray you give us understanding this morning as we consider the words of Jesus to the disciples outside the temple. May we be encouraged and emboldened to live out our faith in all aspects of our lives front of an unbelieving and watching world. Lord, we need you to help us this morning with all these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, I need to preface this morning uh, and level set. There's a lot here uh, in, in Mark's gospel, specifically chapter 13, more specifically verses 14 to 23. There's a, there's a lot here. So a few months ago, I sat down with a spreadsheet because I'm a nerd and I began to look at all the Sundays left in this year and said, okay, um, I, have, I have a goal of finishing uh, the Gospel of Mark, preaching the Gospel of Mark. At this point, we're probably around 64 sermons uh, through the Gospel of Mark. And I said, I want to be done by Advent. Uh, and so in my exuberance and excitement of being done with the Gospel of Mark to, uh, to start fresh, new, something new next year, uh, I actually grouped together too much. So there's a lot here. Um, all that to say that out of my great love for you and your attention span this morning, I've adjusted the preaching calendar such that we will not finish the Gospel of Mark before Advent. Uh, for that would be more than you're willing to actually sit and endure this morning. Uh, all of that to say that huh, there's a lot here. Uh, it's important for you to know that depending on your, your background in church and how much you've studied eschatology, how much you've studied the end time or what theological streams you're swimming out of and into this morning, you might approach this text different than some other folks. So whenever we get to texts that are difficult to understand, uh, we need to approach them from a fundamental starting point of submission. When we approach the scriptures, we need to always be submitting all of our thoughts all of our preconceptions, all of our understandings, all the ways that we think we know what the text says to actually uh, to sit underneath of the text. So what I mean is something, when you read a passage, something like, uh, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, you don't approach that text looking at your life and being like, well, I'm not persecuted and I desire to live a godly life, therefore the text is wrong. You don't approach the text like that. Rather, you approach the text like, Understanding this, I desire to live a life in Christ, a godly life in Christ, so then what does this text mean for the answer? What does this text mean for me? And the answer, of course, will be, well, you better prepare for persecution. Don't run from it. Don't back away from it. Just know of its coming. All of that to say, when we read the scriptures, we simply let them say to us what is true. We place ourselves under the text, not above the text. So with that, let's look at Mark chapter 13 here. Uh, we'll start in verse 1 to get some uh, context of what's going on here. And as he came out of the temple, Jesus, one of the disciples, said to him, Look, teacher, 
What wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed, this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places, there will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. When they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated for all, by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to, let the reader understand, and let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak, and alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it might not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. So as I said already this morning, when we approach the text of the Scripture, we need to first and foremost let the Scripture speak for itself. One of the best ways to actually approach the Scriptures and actually to carry this out is to always be understanding what the context of what the author is saying. One of the ways that we make sure that we don't interpret Scripture poorly or from, making, from not making the Scripture say something that it never says, it is to understand the full context that the Scripture finds itself in. Recall, Jesus has entered into Jerusalem, triumphal entry of Mark chapter 11. He's come now to the holy city. The first time, as a matter of fact, in Mark's gospel that he has approached and entered the city. Now, interesting, John, you have him entering the, the temple uh, at the beginning. But Mark here doesn't have Jesus entering the temple until the very end of, of the gospel here, Mark chapter 11. He enters into Jerusalem. He, he, the crowds are yelling, Hosanna, uh, glory to God in the highest. And then what happens, Jesus enters the temple on that first night, Monday uh, evening there, or Sunday evening, and he enters into the temple fulfilling the prophecies, the scriptures would say. Uh, the next day then, Jesus approaches the temple and he curses the fig tree. And we looked at this a number of weeks ago, 
Uh, he curses the fig tree as a way to tell the disciples that the old age is coming to an end. He then goes into the temple. He, he cleanses the temple, right? He's overturning the money changers' tables, and he, he's driving them out of the temple. And by the way, he's, what he's doing here, what Jesus is doing is he's cleansing the temple. He's, he's making it pure. He's making it pure. He's, he's, he's setting a precedent. And by the way, this was the job of the high priest from the beginning. You see, it was Adam's job in the Garden of Eden to make sure that the snake never appeared before his wife, and he failed that. It was the job of the high priest to cleanse the temple, and yet the temple was not cleansed. And so Jesus enters in and does what the high priest should have been doing all along. Then what happens is Jesus then enters the temple again the next day, and there you have all the religious elite factions, one one behind another, kind of coming to Jesus, what seems to be hard questions for them, and yet Jesus refutes them, almost, almost embarrassing them, always returning them to what the actual scriptures say. And then, then you have Jesus tells the parable of the tenants, which is, by the way, a retelling of the story of Israel, uh, Isaiah chapter 5 and the song of the vineyard. You see this in Mark chapter 12. What's the common theme running throughout this section of Mark's gospel? What is the underlying overtone that Mark seems to be trying to press into his readers. You see, if this is how you, you keep from doing poor exegesis of the text, right? you don't approach the story of the fig tree, right? And Jesus exits the temple, and the, there the, the fig tree is cursed, and then Jesus says something to the tune of, uh, anything you ask in my name will be given to you. You don't interpret that text and be like, ah, there you go. You want a new car? Simply ask it in Jesus' name, and then, by golly, he has to give it to you. No, no, no. The common theme underlying all of these stories, all of the, all the things that Mark is putting before the readers, is the theme of judgment. Judgment has come upon the Jewish people. Judgment is coming upon the temple. Judgment is coming upon the nation. This is God's chosen people, and yet judgment is coming. This leads us to Mark chapter 13. This is the Olivet Discourse. Similar parallel passages, Mark 20, or Matthew chapter 24, Luke 21, you'll find the same tellings of this, uh, this longest discourse of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. But notice what it says at the beginning of Mark 13. This is interesting, right? I didn't call this out necessarily last week, but, but it's interesting that Jesus has departed the temple. And he goes to the Mount of Olives, right? So he, he leaves eastward out of the temple. He goes down to the, uh, the Valley of Kidron, right? And then he, he goes up onto the Mount of Olives there overlooking the temple. Now what's fascinating about this is in Ezekiel 10 and 11, the glory of the Lord departs from the temple. And here in Mark, Jesus departs from the temple never to return to it again. Ezekiel eleven twenty three. 23 talking about the time when the glory of the Lord departed to the temple. This is what it says. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. Now, pause. Think with me here. Jesus went out of the east side of the city, and he goes up onto the Mount of Olives. Notice, this is an allusion to Ezekiel. And there they rest on the Mount of Olives. And Jesus' disciples are fascinated, right? We looked at this last week. They're, they're fascinated with the temple. Look at these stones, one upon another. Aren't they wonderful? Aren't they fascinating, Jesus? And Jesus says it's, it's going to be destroyed. It's going to come down. There will not be one stone left upon another. 
He's talking about judgment of the temple. He's talking about the end of the Jewish age here. So the context then for the Olivet Discourse is local. This is, this is a local prophecy that will happen in, in these disciples' generation, as a matter of fact, and uh, later in Mark chapter 13, verse 30, Jesus says that, that no one from this generation will pass away until all these things will be complete. Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple and the end of the age. And so what we need to understand then is what does he mean when he says all of these things will come to an end, right? When the disciples ask the question, when will these things be? When will, the age of the, when will the end of the age be? Our question, if we interpret correctly, is what age are we talking about? Are we talking about the end of a particular age, or are we talking about the big one? Is this the one, the end of all things, the, the end of the cosmos, the end of life as we know it? You see, in the Old Testament Jewish mindset, there are two ages. The age that is, and the age that is to come. And the age that is to come is when the Messiah comes and reigns and rules over all things. And so when Jesus comes, one of the reasons they doubt that he's actually the Messiah, because they, he doesn't appear to be ruling and leading as they thought he would. He was supposed to come with a crown on, and he was supposed to come to rule, and he was supposed to come uh, make all of the bad things go away, and that's not what happened. But if you begin to think about Jesus, he actually does usher in a kingdom. He ushers in a kingdom. So, so, so you get John the Baptist is preaching that the kingdom of God is what? That is at hand. And you have Jesus who comes in his entire ministry is to show he has domain over all things, all the ills of mankind. He's raising the dead. He's making sick people healthy. He's caring for the poor. Like Those are the signs of the kingdom. Signs of what is ultimately to come at his final rule and reign. This is the continuation of what the Jews taught and had learned from day one that there is coming this day that Jesus Christ will make all things brand new. But in the meantime, there's suffering, there's sorrow, there's, there's pain that will be endured by all. And so this is what the theologian will call the already but not yet. The, the already but not yet time period. You see, we live in the already because Christ has won victory. He has ultimate victory. That's why I'm continually preaching that as a Christian, like you should not live your life from a fundamental starting point and posture of defeat. Your fundamental perspective is a perspective of victory, and yet, and yet we still have defeats, don't we? We still have to wrestle with our own sin. We still have to wrestle with the, the ramification of the sin of others. We still have our own moments of doubts and our own moments of weaknesses. This is the not yet portion. The already and not yet. So if you've been paying attention, you might be wondering, okay, well, what does this have to do with Mark chapter 13 then, Pastor? Listen, I'm glad you asked. You always ask the right questions when I'm preaching. Because when we approach Mark chapter 13 and the question of, well, what age is Jesus referring to? What age is his disciples referring to? I think we need to have the answer in mind that the answer is, is both. Both. I think... What we see Jesus list off here as signs of the end of the age are primarily, understand this, primarily local for their context. We'll see this in just a minute. Primarily local within that generation, according to verse 30. But also, I think it's, it's not yet. You see, these are signs 
and symbols and shadows of what will come to pass in the first century and yet will still waiting to come to pass in the fullness of it. What has happened in our past but the disciples' future was a shadow and a foretaste of the things to come. Given the context of the trajectory of Mark's gospel, that what we have in chapter 13 is something that is primarily past tense but is a shadow of something to come. So Jesus says in verses 5 through 8, he says, uh, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he. They will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. There will... These are the beginning of the birth pain. So what we looked at last week as we uh, kind of thought through and wrestled through these texts is that this is primarily a description of the book of Acts. Like, like, this was a description of the book of Acts. Let me show you what I mean by that. Like, like how many times have we heard in our Christian walk, uh, well, you know the end will come, Pastor. Wars, rumors of wars. But here's, here's interesting. Like, if you turn on Fox News when you get home, or CNN News, or ABC, whatever news station you watch, just watch it for about 20 minutes and let me know if you hear of wars or rumors of wars. You see, we live in the constant tension, and the church has constantly lived ever since AD 70 in the tension of wars and rumors of wars. You see, this is not a surprising thing for you and I. And yet, to the disciples' ears, to hear what Jesus just said would have been breathtaking for them. So they, they lived in the, the Pax Romana, right? This, this Roman peace. Wars were unheard of inside the Pax Romana. This would have been breathtaking. This, this would have been outlandish prediction of something yet to happen. But what happens after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension is this mass of ending of the Roman, uh, the Roman civilization, right? Uh, all things began to break down. And this persecution that Jesus mentioned here, it happens throughout the rest of the New Testament. So we have records in, in the scriptures themselves of Paul saying, like, I'm beaten by the church. I'm, I'm dragged before the synagogues, before the governors, before princes. And, but then also we have historic, like, outside the Bible records of what's actually happened. So in 50 AD, we have uh, records of riots breaking out because of Christos, right? Because of the Christian religion and because of the riots. And the Jews were being expelled from Rome. Why? Because the riots, right? The, riot, the riots over who Jesus is and the Christian message. It was causing this massive upending within the Roman Empire. But in the 6080s, we see that Rome ultimately turns on the Christians, and now Rome puts their sights on the early Christian church. Nero comes along, pursues violently the early Christians. He goes after Paul, he goes after Peter. We have records of all the apostles martyred save one. Right? You have the fact that the early Christians were actually rounded up in the streets by Nero. And they would tie them to the stakes, get them in an oil pitch, and then light them on fire and burn them as Roman candles for Nero's garden parties. You see, Nero was a beast and a persecutor of the church. And so Jesus says in verse 9, well, be on guard. They will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Right? We can see even in this verse 10, right, this already and not yet paradigm of what, what Mark is saying, what Jesus is saying here in verse 10. 
Because we look at that and we say, well, how could the gospel be preached to all, all the nations yet? How could it be proclaimed to all the nations? Like even today there's nations, there's people groups that have never heard of Jesus Christ. And yet the New Testament is, is clear on this point. See, Paul would say in Colossians 1.23, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation, like, listen, has been, was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Well, Colossians uh, 1 and 5, Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of this, you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and increasing. Romans 1.8, first I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. You see, this, this prediction that Jesus is making that uh, the gospel must first be proclaimed in all the nations is, is the, the New Testament actually say, yeah, that, that happened already, in a sense. You see, this is the already aspect. And yet it's the not yet of the aspect because we know that we are still called to go evangelize the nations. So the context for our text this morning is primarily rooted and grounded in the immediate context of the disciples. And yet it is a shadow of something still future to us today. Look at verse 14. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. What's Jesus saying here? He's predicting judgment on the temple. He's predicting the end of this age. He's predicting the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. The discussion here is a local judgment that is coming. So when Jesus says those who are in Judea flee, he is saying that those in Judea should flee to the mountains. And notice the language Jesus is using here. It's language of destruction that his disciples would have immediately been like, ah, yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. You see, Jesus prophesied about the destruction of the temple. Matthew 23, verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her broad under her wings, and you were not willing. And that's what Jesus says next. See, your house is left to you desolate. This is the language the disciples would have heard. Said, oh, desolation. Oh, he's talking about the end of temple. Consider the desolation of the temple that would have come from Nebuchadnezzar that Isaiah speaks of in Isaiah 64. Your holy cities have become a wilderness, Zion has become a wilderness, Jerusalem a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praise you has been burned by fire and all our pleasant places have become ruins. So Jesus is saying that the temple is going to come down. The temple will end. But he's not very clear about the timing, is it? Did you notice this, 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 this language that he uses, this desolation of abomination, standing where he ought not? The Greek text is very clear here that uh, this, this idea of standing is not, uh, is, they, they say it's masculine, so therefore it means that it's actually a person. We should expect an actual person, person standing where he ought not be. But yet Luke 21 verse 20 is, is a little bit more clear. Jesus in the same parallel passage says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation 
has come near. In AD 70, Jerusalem was burned to the ground by the Roman army. Surrounded for months on end, uh, the Jerusalem, the, the army was uh, surrounding Jerusalem, the Roman army was surrounding Jerusalem, trying to weigh, bear them out, weigh them down. And Jesus says, when the, when the armies are surrounding the city, flee to the mountains. Just flee. And this would have been against all common sense in those days. You see, when an, a, a, an army was moving in on those days, you didn't run for the rural areas. Where did you go? You went behind the city walls. You went home. Uh, to, to, you went back into the city where there was more protection. And history books will tell us that as the Roman army was there, surrounding the city, they said there was a time where they actually pulled back. We don't know why. The, the history records don't show for us why exactly they, they pulled back before they actually went in to actually conquer the city. But during that time, what we know has happened is all the Christians who believed this text, all the Jews had become Christ followers, they remembered what he said. When Jerusalem is surrounded by the armies, flee out of the city into the mountains. And so they, they left. When the Roman army pulled back, the Christians escaped the city. And in AD 70, Jerusalem was burned to the ground. This is the already of the text. However, the not yet of the text comes from this other idea, this abomination of desolation. When he says, let the reader understand. This is Mark's note into his text. He's saying, like, there's something more here. Don't just graze over it, but actually understand what I'm saying. Matthew 24, 15, the other parallel passage. This is what Jesus says. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. So you got this idea, right? There's, there's this idea of somebody standing in a place they shouldn't be, and Matthew would say, in the holy place. Matthew would also say it's the, spoken of by the prophet Daniel. So this goes back to Daniel chapter 9. We're given a vision of Daniel's 70 weeks. Now listen, I don't have enough time. My timer says I have 10 minutes left to actually dig into Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy. Uh, just know there's a lot there. There's a lot there. Uh, there there's two primary views of how to view Daniel's 70 weeks. Uh, either Daniel's 70 weeks have already been completed and fulfilled, or there still remains some to be fulfilled. Those who argue that the weeks of Daniel's prophecy have been completed say that A.D. 70 marked the end of Daniel's timeline. And those who argue that there still remains time from Daniel's vision to be fulfilled will be finished at the end of the cosmos, the end of all things. Now look right at me. As your pastor, I'm not completely sure where exactly I stand on the matter. But here's what all groups across uh, wherever you stand in your eschatology agree that, that Jesus is coming back. Every Christian believes Jesus is coming back. I'm just saying on this particular issue, I'm still unsure. Hopefully, uh, hopefully you don't think less of me. But notice the verses 15 and 18, 15 through 18 here. Jesus talking to his disciples, talking about this abomination, talking about when this happens, uh, you need to leave the city. And he says in verse 15, let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it might not happen in winter. 
this is another reason why I think that the, the, the context which Jesus is speaking has to be primarily the local context that Jesus is warning about here. Jesus here warns of the urgency of the matter. He said that the believers must be on the alert, must be ready. And he prays that, he says that, pray that it doesn't happen in winter. Now, here's one reason why I think it has to be local. He's talking primarily about the destruction of the temple is because winter in that part of the world looks a lot different than winter in the rest of the world. Like for 99% of the rest of the world. Depending on where you are, winter actually would be uh, a help if this is primarily talking about the end times. But, but the, the point of the matter is that he's, he's arguing for the urgency of it, right? This is why he says, like, if you're out in the fields, and uh, don't even go back home to get your coat. Just, just flee. Get out of there. Or the one who's on the housetop, not to go down and enter his house to take anything out. They would, they would chill up on their housetops at the end of a long day, right? This would be like where their living room was, more or less. He says, like, when you hear that this is happening, don't even go inside your house. Just run. Just run. What he says to believers in that day, though, is the same for us. That you and I must be ready. And we must live in hopeful expectation of the return of Christ. The same is true for us. Look at verse 19. For in those days... There will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Understand that in relation to the destruction of the temple in AD 70, there was massive tribulation. But the argument remains here from Mark's gospel is that is there a greater tribulation coming? Is there a greater tribulation coming? Seems to be already and not yet. You see, we look at the scriptures in the New Testament the same way that the New Testament folks looked at the Old Testament scriptures. Uncertain about timelines and length of time between events. As if they were approaching a mountain range from a distance. I've used this illustration before. As if they're approaching a mountain range from a distance. They see the peaks uh, and to their minds, they look at almost the same distance. And it's not until you actually get up on top of a mountain that you see that other mountain that you thought was right beside that one is actually miles and miles away. Look at verse 21. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Here's where, here's where I kind of want to end the plane here, land the plane, but, but be on guard. It's the same point as last week. Right? Jesus' point in telling all of the disciples all of these things is not so they can uh, pinpoint with great accuracy and, and, and know for certainty the day or the hour of when all these things will be, but his point in giving them all of these signs so they would be on guard. So they would be on guard, so they would not be led astray. And you see, the word to the disciples then is the same to us today, is to be on guard. And so we say, well, be on guard for what? Against who or what are we to be on guard against, Pastor? What we are to be on guard is that we would not depart from the Scriptures. Your greatest challenge to your faith is that you would actually no longer believe the Scriptures. You see, the moment I can convince you that maybe there's a little bit of doubt in the scriptures, 
maybe it's been tweaked by mankind. Maybe it's, maybe it's all a sham. You see, the whole thing comes collapsing down. You see, I've, I've had conversations with, with folks who think that, well, like, I believe in God and I believe in Jesus. I just don't trust the Bible or the church or pastors or preachers or even other Christians. To which my, then my, my, my next question was then, how do you know that you're right? Like, like, what are you basing your source of truth on? What are you basing your knowledge of Jesus on? What are you basing your love that you think God has for you on, if not the scriptures? You see, you and I today need to be on guard that we would leave this book, or that we would approach this book with anything other than submission to it. You see, the great enlightenment project of the West is that we can use our own logic and our own reasoning to figure out everything, right? That's the great enlightenment project. It's a, it's a, it's a failed project, uh, as our day and age uh, attests to. It's a, but if we approach the scriptures with our Western thinking that, well, I can reason my way towards God, listen, we would, we would be lost forever in darkness. You see, the reason God had to give us a book is because we would have never found our way to him without it. So be on guard, church, to not leave this book. Be on guard to think less of it than it ought to be thought of. Be on guard that you would replace the rule of your faith and the rule of your life with reasoning or argumentation or doctrine or church membership. Everything needs to be grounded in the scriptures. For that is the only true word we have from God. So church, Jesus' words to his disciples in that day, talking primarily about the coming destruction of the temple, be on guard. Father God, we thank you for your love and your kindness and your patience to us. Lord, I pray where we are weak in our understanding and our knowledge and our reasoning, Lord, you would give us grace. You would give us understanding that we would grow up into mature Christians, not easily swayed by the winds of change and arguments and lofty reasoning, Father. They would be rooted and grounded in a faith that works itself out in practical, everyday application of our lives. Lord, I pray that we would be on guard. I pray you would help us. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask Philip to come do the benediction.